there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. The Gospel of John recounts the story of Mary Magdalene's journey to the tomb, holding the body of Jesus of Nazareth. It was very early in the morning, still dark, three days after Jesus' crucifixion. As she neared the entrance, the ground was suddenly rocked by a powerful earthquake. Terrified, Mary hastened to the tomb. She was shocked to find Jesus' body was not inside. Instead, she found a young man wearing white clothes that glowed like lightning. He was an angel. He told her that Jesus had risen. Overjoyed, Mary ran to tell the disciples. But when the disciple Peter returned to the tomb, he found no one inside. The only thing left was Jesus' burial shroud, a long, light cloth used to cover his body in death. But the shroud looked different now. It had a faint, sepia-toned image on it, the imprint of Jesus' body and face. Today, over 2,000 years later, a shroud matching this description resides in a chapel in Turin, Italy. Throughout the Middle Ages and into the 20th century, religious officials, scientists, and scholars fiercely debated whether this shroud really did bear the profile of Christ. The Catholic Church itself spent centuries trying to prove the shroud was a fake, but there are still those today who believe in its authenticity. Could the shroud be a forgery? Or is it possible that it actually features the mystically imprinted profile of Jesus Christ? In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can find all previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of Parcast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on the Shroud of Turin, a burial cloth currently on display in the Italian city of Turin. This week we'll look at the origin and history of the Shroud, tracking its remarkable journey through the two millennia since the death of Jesus Christ. If the Shroud of Turin is authentic, it has survived cross-continental travel, wars, floods, and fires, and has outlived every owner who has guarded it 
worshipped it, hidden it, and stolen it. Even more extraordinary than the shroud's physical survival is its spiritual staying power. As the shroud's illustrious career unfolds, perhaps we will better understand why this relic has been leaving humans awestruck for thousands of years. Death makes for a central theme of Christianity. The crux of the religion is the story of Jesus Christ's crucifixion, death, and resurrection. But one part of the story less discussed is the matter of Jesus' burial shroud. A shroud was a common part of Jewish and early Christian funeral rites. It was a long piece of cloth used to wrap the corpse before burial. And if the Shroud of Turin is what it purports to be, it's a direct physical link to Jesus' time on earth, the birth of Christianity, and depending on what you believe in, God himself. Traditionally, burial shrouds are made of very simple cloth. They are one color, usually white, and made of basic fabrics like cotton or linen without any adornments. This simplicity represents the universality of death. Whether we are young or old, man or woman, rich or poor, we all die. The Shroud of Turin adheres to these norms. It's a long rectangle of beige linen woven with herringbone twill in a repeating pattern of Vs neatly stacked inside each other. It measures about 14 and a half feet by three and a half feet. Most notably, the shroud bears the faint but visible profile of a man. Modern photography has produced negatives of the image imprinted on the cloth and allowed historians to study his profile in greater detail. To this day, it is not known how the cloth came to absorb and display the man's profile. Modern scientists have proposed possible chemical processes that could have led to the image, but nothing has been confirmed. A body, one that many believe was Jesus, was laid on top of the shroud, which was then folded over at the head, covering the top of the corpse. Imagine the shroud folded in half lengthwise, with the body lying in between the two halves. So the shroud contains images of the back and front of a human man, about 5 feet 11 inches tall. The image is sepia-toned, faded, and vague, but it is possible to make out the imprint of a naked man bearing the wounds of crucifixion, holes through both wrists and both feet. There is excessive blood on the right side, where Jesus was said to be gouged with a spear, and spottier bleeding from the back, where Jesus was flagellated with a whip. The imprint on the shroud itself is faint, but photographic negatives of the shroud reveal a stunningly detailed image, particularly of the face imprinted in the fabric. The individual hairs of the beard and tiny wounds on the forehead, consistent with scratches from a crown of thorns, are clearly visible. The history of the shroud is well documented after 1353, when a French knight, Geoffrey de Charny, acquired the shroud and placed it in a monastery. Prior to that, there are several unverified stories about cloths that could be the Shroud of Turin. Assyrian text translated around 300 CE by the scholar Eusebius relays a story about King Abgar V. Abgar ruled Edessa, an area in present-day Turkey, from roughly 13 to 50 CE. Throughout his life, 
King Abgar suffered from a mysterious chronic illness. Many scholars believe that he was struggling to recover from leprosy. Leprosy causes loss of feeling in the limbs and skin and often results in disfigurement and gangrenous limbs due to unnoticed infections or wounds. It was an extremely stigmatized disease during King Abgar's time and was considered incurable. When King Abgar heard about the miracles Jesus of Nazareth was performing, he sent an emissary with a letter for Jesus, requesting his healing presence. Jesus wrote back that he couldn't make the journey himself, but he would send a disciple. The disciples didn't make the trip until after Jesus' death and resurrection. Jude the Apostle arrived in Edessa with a cloth that had the image of Jesus' face visible upon it. According to the story, the moment King Abgar looked at the cloth, which was known at this time as the image of Edessa, he was suddenly completely cured of his ailment. Abgar converted to Christianity and declared Christianity the official religion of his entire kingdom. The image of Edessa stayed with Abgar during the remainder of his reign. After King Abgar's death, his son Menu returned to paganism. Christianity was outlawed in Edessa, and all Christians in the kingdom either fled, went underground, or were executed. The image of Edessa disappeared. It was assumed that the cloth had been destroyed in the purge. There was no mention of the shroud in historical record for nearly 500 years, but then, miraculously, it reappeared. There are a few different stories about how and when the shroud reemerged after Christianity was outlawed in Edessa. Each one of them adds something different to the shroud's legend. Around 525 CE, Edessa suffered devastating floods that leveled much of the city and killed one-third of the population. As the city was rebuilt, a cloth was found wedged into a crack high up on the damaged west gate into Edessa. Someone took great pains to store it there. The crack where the cloth was found was well above average human height and protected from the floodwaters. Perhaps one of the faithful was looking to shield it during Manu's authoritarian rule. When the cloth was removed and unfolded, it bore the image of a crucified man. It would seem that this was the image of Edessa still intact after hundreds of years. Author John C. Iannone tells a slightly different story about the chance discovery of the shroud in his book, The Three Cloths of Christ, the emerging treasures of Christianity. In 544 CE, Edessa was threatened by a Persian attack from King Khosro. Procopius of Caesarea, a historian who documented the period, wrote of the conflict, quote, the walls of Edessa were tall and strong, but the Persians built a huge tower to overtop them, whence from their great number they could swamp the garrison. But before the tower was completed, the defenders burrowed underneath it, made a chamber, and filled it with highly flammable material and set it ablaze. But while they were digging an underground tunnel, the Edessans found the shroud, secured in an underground portion of the city wall. Another Syrian historian, Evagrius Scholasticus, has an even more outlandish story about the reemergence of the shroud. In his 6th century book, Ecclesiastical History, 
Evagrius suggests that the shroud was a well-kept secret by the surviving Edessan Christians throughout the anti-Christian era. As the threat from the Persians became increasingly dire, the bishops retrieved the shroud. When the attackers laid eyes on the blessed object, they inexplicably retreated. Evagrius was the first to call the cloth Akiro Pietos, which means not made by human hands. There's no mention of the shroud or anything resembling it for several centuries after these legends from mid-500 CE. During that period, many religious artifacts were destroyed after Byzantine Emperor Leo III declared all religious icons, quote, idolatrous and heretical. But somehow, the shroud survived another purge of Christians and Christianity in the Middle Eastern region and re-emerged a second time near the end of the first millennia CE. In 943 CE, over 400 years after the shroud was rediscovered in Edessa, Byzantine Emperor Romanus Lecapenus sent an emissary to the city. Lecapenus wanted the mysterious cloth imprinted with the image of a face brought to Constantinople. He believed that the cloth would help prevent an enemy invasion of his capital city during his campaign to expand the Byzantine Empire. This account implies that, despite the lack of any written record, the shroud had remained in Edessa for the 400 years since Manu's rule. Lecapenus offered 12,000 pieces of silver, the release of 200 prisoners of war, and a promise that Edessa would be spared in the upcoming war in exchange for the shroud. Edessa accepted the offer, and the cloth arrived in Constantinople on August 15, 944 CE. In this version of the story, Edessa was spared from a violent occupation by the Romans. A more violent version of the story states that Lecapenus demanded the shroud from Edessa during his vicious campaign to take control of all the lands east of his kingdom. The emperor had already invaded the city and would only withdraw with the shroud in his possession. However the shroud reached Constantinople, once it arrived, it was quickly embraced. In 945 CE, after the shroud had been in Constantinople a year, Emperor Constantine Porphyrogenitos declared August 16th as the Feast of the Holy Mandilion in the Orthodox Church. Mandilion means handkerchief or veil in Arabic and was one of the names of the shroud at the time. For about 200 years, the shroud was rarely displayed for the public, but it was trotted out to impress powerful company. Famous leaders like French King Louis VII reported viewing the cloth during visits to Constantinople in the 1100s. Not long after, the French came back, though under much less diplomatic circumstances. In 1204 CE, about 260 years after the Shroud arrived in Constantinople, the city was attacked by the French during the Fourth Crusade. The Crusades were a series of medieval wars backed by the Roman Catholic Church. In general, the goal of these conflicts was to reclaim holy sites and lands from Muslim rule, but they were also fought to quash paganism or simply to gain territory. The Fourth Crusade was initially commissioned to take control of Jerusalem from the Muslims, but murky political and trading ambitions refocused Crusaders on Constantinople instead. The city was ransacked in 1204, 
and the soldiers made off with all kinds of valuables, including religious relics. Robert du Clary, a French knight, recorded the fall of Constantinople in his journal. He wrote about a cloth, quote, which stood up straight every Friday so that the figure of our Lord could be plainly seen there. After Constantinople fell, records are limited for the next 150 years. The little evidence available suggests that the shroud was protected by the Knights Templar during the 11th and 12th centuries. The Knights Templar was a Catholic organization that combined a monk-like lifestyle with militaristic strength. The mysterious elite group was formed in 1119 CE to protect religious artifacts and holy sites during the Crusades. The Knights were present when Constantinople was defeated in 1204, although there's no evidence that the Knights were actively seeking the Shroud. There is, however, evidence that the Knights worshipped an image of Christ that sounds very similar to the Shroud. In 2009, a Vatican scholar named Barbara Frale uncovered a record of a Templar initiation ritual performed in 1287. An initiate named Arnaud Sabatier wrote, quote, I was shown a long piece of linen on which was impressed the figure of a man and told to worship it, kissing the feet three times. Frale speculated that records of the Shroud are sparse during its time with the Knights of Templar because the looting of relics was punishable by excommunication. In fact, when Pope Clement V dissolved the Templar Order in 1312, he cited many reasons, chief among them the Order's illegal possession of relics and their idolatrous worship of an image of Jesus. Many scholars believe this image could be the Shroud. Not all of the knights accepted Pope Clement's ruling. Some continued to uphold the practices of the order and were subsequently hunted down and executed. In 1314, two Templar Grand Masters were burned at the stake. One of them was named Geoffrey de Charnay of Normandy. About 40 years later, in 1353, Geoffrey de Charnay's nephew, who was also named Geoffrey de Charnay, built a church in Lyre, France. Inside it, he displayed an astonishing cloth that bore the image of Christ's face. Next, we'll discuss how the Descharnay family became the first shroud custodians to successfully monetize the relic and how the Catholic Church fought back. Now, back to the story. The Shroud of Turin, believed by some to be the burial shroud of Jesus Christ, made its way through medieval wars, floods, and anti-Christian purges to finally enter into the official historical record in 1353, when a French knight named Geoffrey de Charny built St. Mary of Lyre Church in Lyre, France. In St. Mary of Lyre Church, de Charny displayed a burial shroud he claimed to have acquired in Constantinople during the war. However, the evidence available does not support de Charny's story. As we discussed earlier, there is reason to believe that the Knights Templar had possession of the shroud between 1204 and 1312 CE. There is no evidence indicating that the shroud remained in Constantinople after the Fourth Crusade. And the Hundred Years' War, was not fought anywhere near Constantinople. 
Aside from Descharny's word, there's nothing to indicate that he liberated the shroud from Constantinople himself. Scholars speculate that Descharny was given the shroud by his Templar grandmaster uncle or another friend in the Knights Templar. The Catholic Church maintained the same skeptical stance on the shroud that they'd established during the disbandment of the Knights Templar. Church authorities issued Descharny specific instructions to only refer to and treat the cloth as a picture or representation of Jesus, not the authentic burial shroud of Christ. Descharny never officially broke these rules, but he certainly bent them. Although we have no record of Descharny's opinion about the shroud, he was known to be a pious man. It's likely he believed the shroud was real, just as the Templars had. After all, the shroud was given its own complex veneration ritual. When the shroud was on display for the faithful, it was unfolded by, quote, two priests using the greatest possible reverence with lighted torches and upon a lofty platform constructed for this special purpose. This presentation was very elaborate for an object that was supposedly nothing more than an artistic representation of the Messiah. But the fancy presentation had the desired effect. The spectacle attracted thousands of pilgrims from across Europe. In the Middle Ages, a religious pilgrimage was one of the few opportunities a person outside the upper class would have to travel. Some pilgrims would travel for hundreds of miles, often on foot, in order to witness people, places, or relics that deepened their faith and drew them closer to God. The Shroud of Turin made St. Mary of Lyre Church a popular pilgrimage destination, generating a boon in tithes to the chapel. But the church's treatment of the shroud was considered ostentatious by some and idolatrous by others. The Catholic Church would not remain silent forever. In 1356, only three years after the church opened, Geoffrey de Charny was killed during the Battle of Poitiers. Within a month, Joffrey's widow, Jeanne, petitioned to bequeath the financial grants in her late husband's name to her son, yet another Joffrey de Charny. Her request was granted, keeping the shroud and the money it brought in from worshipers in the family. But not everyone wanted to see the de Charny family hold on to the shroud. In 1389, 33 years after de Charny's death, a bailiff arrived at the chapel from the nearby city of Troyes. He carried a letter bearing the signature of King Charles VI that ordered the chapel to give up the shroud so that it could be delivered to another church in Troyes. It's unclear why King Charles suddenly wanted the shroud to be moved to Troyes. Some scholars have speculated that he was acting at the behest of Bishop Pierre Darcy of Troyes, who would certainly benefit if the popular shroud was moved into his diocese. Or King Charles could have been scandalized by the de Charny's family's insinuation that the shroud was authentic and was hoping that Bishop Pierre Darcy of Troyes would handle the shroud with more restraint. However, all of King Charles' decisions have to be taken with a grain of salt, as he was known for his unpredictable outbursts of insanity. His decision in this matter may not have been driven by logic. In any case, when the Troyes official arrived in Lyre, the chapel officers claimed they didn't have access to the shroud. 
The shroud was locked inside a treasury, and no one seemed to know who held the key. After a protracted squabble, the exasperated Trois official welded the treasury doors shut. If the treasury couldn't be opened at all, at least the Trois official knew the shroud wouldn't be spirited away when he wasn't looking. After almost two weeks of trying to get his hands on the shroud, the Trois official called for backup, and the king's first sergeant joined him in Lyrae. He advised all officials of the Lyrae Chapel that, quote, the cloth was now verbally put into the hands of our lord the king. The decision has also been conveyed to the squire of the Descharny household for conveyance to his master. But his warning was not heeded, and the shroud remained in Lyrae. Two months later, in November of 1389, Bishop Pierre d'Arcy of Troyes wrote an indignant letter to Pope Clement VII. If King Charles couldn't get the shroud removed from Lyrae, perhaps the Pope could. But instead of arguing his case for wanting the shroud relocated, the bishop threw a tantrum and started issuing statements that the shroud was a complete fraud. The bishop wrote that the chapel in Lyrae was not only displaying the shroud improperly, but the chapel officials knew the relic was false. He went so far as to accuse the Descharny family of having commissioned the shroud from an artist as part of a scheme to deceive pilgrims and scam them out of donation money. Pope Clement VII was unmoved, writing back that the bishop should stop attacking the St. Mary of Lyrae chapel and the shroud or face excommunication. However, the ever-even-handed Pope Clement also wrote the Descharny family, reminding them of the proper way to exhibit the shroud without misleading pilgrims. Despite the papal slap on the wrist, the Descharny family clearly enjoyed the Pope's favor. King Charles never followed up his order to relocate the shroud, and it remained in Lyrae. And about six months later, Pope Clement granted supplemental indulgences for any pilgrim who visited St. Mary of Lyrae. For Roman Catholics in medieval times, indulgences were a way to reduce the suffering they faced in the afterlife for sins committed on earth. Think of them as a kind of antidote to sinning. The papal decree that visiting St. Mary of Lyrae was an extra-potent indulgence no doubt increased traffic and tithes at St. Mary of Lyrae. In 1398, ownership of the shroud passed to Marguerite de Charny, granddaughter of the chapel's founder, Geoffrey de Charny. Marguerite followed in her father's footsteps, continuing to display the shroud at St. Mary's. In 1418, Twenty years after Marguerite officially took ownership of the shroud, church staff became concerned for the shroud's security due to marauding bands near Lyrae. Marguerite and her husband, Umber, brought the shroud to Umber's castle at Montbard, about 46 miles from Lyrae. The shroud was regularly displayed in and around Montbard for the next 25 years. In 1443, all danger near Lyrae had since passed, and the clergy of St. Mary of Lyrae officially petitioned Marguerite to return the shroud. Marguerite refused. Over the next 10 years, Marguerite traveled around France. She kept the shroud on her person and exhibited it in every city she visited. 
An archive in Mons, a coastal French city almost 400 miles from Lyre, noted that Margaret visited with, quote, what is called the Holy Shroud of Our Lord, end quote. The archive also notes that Margaret favored French red wine. In 1453, Margaret finally settled down near Lyon, France, in her brand new castle. The castle and the revenues of a nearby estate were given to Margaret by her cousin Anna's new husband, Duke Louis I of Savoy. The Savoy family recorded the gift to Margaret as a show of gratitude for valuable services. Scholars now suspect that these services were, in fact, the shroud, which Margaret passed on to the Savoys before her death. Margaret had been dodging litigation for decades. But in May 1457, two different courts ruled that her possession of the shroud was illegal. The Catholic Church finally issued Margaret's excommunication, which devastated her. Shortly before Margaret's death, her half-brother, Charles de Noyer, negotiated with the clergy of St. Mary's of Lyre to compensate them for the loss of the shroud. They were able to reach an agreement, and when Margaret passed away in 1460, she was on good terms with the Roman Catholic Church. After Margaret's death, the Savoy family wanted to continue her practice of exhibiting the shroud. However, whereas Margaret had simply ignored the orders of the church for years, the Savoy family wanted to go through the proper channels to ensure their exhibitions were endorsed. In an accord drawn up in Paris in 1464, the Savoys agreed to pay a yearly rent to the Lyre Chapel for possession of the shroud. The accord also specifically notes that the shroud had been given to St. Mary's of Lyre by Geoffrey de Charnay I, but that Margaret, his granddaughter, had given the shroud to Duke Louis I of Savoy. This document is the first official record of the Savoys holding ownership of the shroud. The collection of the rent for the shroud would stretch over generations and was not always honored by the Savoy family. To this day, St. Mary's of Lyre has never fully collected on what they were owed for losing possession of the shroud. The Savoys continued Margaret's tradition of carefully guarding the shroud. They carried it with them as their court moved from castle to castle over the remainder of the 15th century, displaying it and collecting tithes from the faithful everywhere they went. In 1502, the Duchess of Savoy, Marguerite of Austria, decreed that the shroud would have a permanent home in the royal chapel of Chambery Castle. The shroud was rehoused with a gaudy ceremony. The entire Savoy family and local clergy were present to witness Laurent Allemand, Bishop of Grenoble, carry the shroud inside a silver case into the royal chapel of Chambery Castle. The shroud was delicately unfolded and briefly displayed on the chapel's highest altar, and then care of the shroud was transferred to Archdeacon Jacques Veyron. Archdeacon Veyron refolded the shroud into its case and placed it into a special space hollowed out of the wall above and behind the high altar. Once inside, the cavity was enclosed behind an iron grate with four locks, each opened by separate keys. The Duke held two of the keys, 
and church officials held the other two. Once the transfer was complete, Pope Sixtus IV bestowed a new name upon the Chambéry Chapel, Saint-Chapelle, which translates to Holy Chapel. Soon after the shroud settled at Saint-Chapelle, Duchess Yolanda of Savoy established Chambéry's Poor Clare's Convent, a group of nuns whose lives were dedicated to the upkeep and protection of the shroud. That convent is still active today. Seven years later, in 1509, Marguerite, the new Duchess of Savoy, commissioned Flemish artist Lievan van Latam to design a new reliquary for the shroud. It was constructed entirely out of silver. In exchange for the expensive gift, the Saint-Chapelle chapter was obligated to say a specific daily mass for Marguerite and her late husband, Philibert. The shroud remained extremely popular through the early 1500s, but the Savoy's limited viewings for the public, opting instead to organize private viewings to attract powerful dignitaries, including King Francis I of France. Unfortunately, the shroud would not make it through the 16th century unscathed. In 1532, there was a destructive fire at Saint-Chapelle. Because the shroud was protected by four locks, there was a panic to free it before it went up in flames. Clergyman Philibert Lambert frantically rushed a blacksmith into the burning building to pry open the red-hot metal grate. By the time it was ripped open, the silver reliquary commissioned by Duchess Marguerite had melted beyond recognition. But somehow, the shroud remained folded inside, relatively unscathed. It was a little scorched, and a single drop of melting silver had burned a hole through one corner. Everything else in the interior of the chapel was damaged, and the chapel itself was barely left standing. Against all logic, the shroud survived again. The Chambéry fire is not the last catastrophe the shroud withstood, but the following centuries would present a new adversary, science. Coming up next, we'll discuss modern attempts to authenticate the shroud and determine if it really did touch the face of Jesus Christ. And now, back to our story. The Shroud of Turin, believed by many to be the burial cloth of Jesus Christ himself, had made it through a fire that flattened most everything else in its wake. Two years after the fire, in 1534, Chambéry's poor Claire nuns reinforced the shroud by sewing it onto a sturdy backing cloth. They also sewed patches over the most scorched areas and over the holes caused by the melting silver. The following year, 1535, the Savoy region was invaded by French troops who were gearing up to fight the Spanish in the Italian War. The Savoy family fled Chambéry Castle for safety, taking the shroud with them. For the next 30 years, Savoys traveled around France and Italy, exhibiting the shroud in Turin, Milan, and Nice, dispelling rumors that it was destroyed in the fire. In 1561, the Savoy family finally returned the shroud to Chambéry and celebrated by generously displaying it to the public on the walls of the city. Pilgrims came from all over France to venerate the shroud. For 16 years, the shroud remained available for anyone in the city to look upon and pray to. 
Then in 1578, Cardinal Charles Borromeo declared plans to journey on foot from Milan to Chambéry to pay homage to the Shroud. Borromeo wanted to extend his gratitude for Milan's deliverance from the bubonic plague. Borromeo was a highly influential figure in the Roman Catholic Church. Among other achievements, he established seminaries as the backbone of education for young priests. He would later be posthumously canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. His planned 1578 visit to Chambéry would be considered a major honor. But the journey between Milan and Chambéry was over 200 miles and included an arduous route through the Italian and French Alps. Borromeo was over 50 years old and not physically up to the journey. So Duke Emmanuel Philibert decreed that the shroud be brought to the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist in Turin to shorten the trip. During Borromeo's visit, the shroud was carried in a procession that included Borromeo, the archbishops of Turin and Savoy, and six other bishops. The procession progressed from the cathedral in Turin to the piazza, where the shroud was displayed for a crowd of 40,000 people. The shroud has more or less remained in the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist in Turin ever since. It's not clear why the shroud wasn't returned from Turin after Borromeo's visit. Perhaps the Duke never ordered it to be moved, or maybe the powers that be realized that Turin was a better location that would allow more people to visit the shroud. People certainly wanted to visit the shroud. Its public display continued to drive thousands of pilgrims to Turin. At another public display in 1647, the crowd was so tightly packed inside the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist that several pilgrims reportedly died of suffocation. The exhibition of the shroud continued to underscore important events and was displayed to honor important visitors. In 1804, Pope Pius VII made a detour to venerate the shroud on his way to crown Napoleon. He returned 11 years later in 1815 on his way back to Italy when Napoleon was defeated. On this 1815 trip, Pope Pius VII went before the crowd and held the shroud over the balcony of the Palazzo Madama himself. When the shroud was returned to its home over the high altar, Pope Pius sealed the reliquary with his papal seal. Although the Catholic Church has never officially declared a stance on the authenticity of the shroud, Pope Pius' veneration only increased reverence from believers. But interest in the shroud was about to expand beyond just the faithful as the world entered a new era of science and research. In 1898, the city of Turin honored the 400th anniversary of Turin Cathedral, which had been renamed St. John the Baptist Cathedral. The organizers planned for an exhibition of the shroud. In addition, two realistic paintings of the shroud were made, and for the very first time, the shroud was photographed. Italian photographer Secondo Pia was commissioned for the job. Photography was still a very young medium in 1898, when Secondo Pia was practicing the craft. Each image was captured on a glass plate that had been coated with light-sensitive chemicals. 
Taking multiple photographs with a single camera was arduous because the glass plates were fragile and expensive. Secondo Pia photographed the shroud under a variety of conditions and with multiple cameras to increase his odds of a successful exposure. But he never suspected that he wouldn't even need to develop the photos. After his session, Secondo Pio brought the cameras into a dark room, removed the plates from the cameras, and soaked them in a solution of iron oxalate to develop them. He then dropped them briefly into a developer's solution to fix them. When Secondo Pio removed one of the glass plates from the developer's solution, he was astonished to find a positive image on the negative plate. This image showed in great detail a bearded face with shoulder-length hair, the face, many believe, of Jesus Christ. Normally, a photographic negative reverses light and dark. Most negatives are therefore very murky and difficult to interpret, especially to a layperson. It was absolutely incredible and unexpected to find that a negative of the shroud was actually a clearer image than the shroud itself. Secondo Pia wrote about this moment in a letter to Professor A. Loth, dated June 29, 1907. Quote, Alone, locked up in my dark room, totally lost in my work, I witnessed a very strong sensation when I saw for the first time, during the development of my plates, the holy face. I was astonished and happy at the same time, because at that very moment, I became certain that my work would be successful. Secondo Pia had captured an image that was not visible to the naked eye. This birthed a new level of obsession with the shroud. When the photograph was published in newspapers worldwide, it caused a sensation. Secondo Pia's work seemed to prove the shroud's authenticity more than any evidence heretofore. What artist or forger would be capable of creating a negative image? Photography had only been invented 70 years earlier and was still gaining popularity among the public. There was general agreement the shroud was at least several centuries old. How could a forger have created a negative image before the technology to create a negative existed? The shroud's authenticity was no longer a matter of faith. For the first time, the scientific community considered the possibility of the shroud's authenticity. The first member of the scientific community to respond was Yves Delage, a professor of comparative anatomy at the Sorbonne University in Paris and the director of the Paris Museum of Natural History. In 1902, four years after the revelation of Secondo Pia's photographs, Yves Delage presented a paper asserting that there was scientific evidence for the shroud's authenticity. Yves Delage based his conclusions on the following four facts. The anatomical details on the shroud, the negative image, the lack of pigment in that image, and the fact that the body represented on the shroud had not decomposed at the time it was imprinted. Based on those facts, Yves Delage reached four conclusions. One, the image on the shroud was not the result of a forgery. Two, the shroud had covered a human body that had undergone crucifixion. Three, somehow the crucified body had been imprinted upon the cloth. Finally, the body the shroud had covered 
was that of Jesus of Nazareth. Yves Delage was a very public agnostic, and his peers were surprised to hear him arguing that the shroud was indeed the cloth used to cover Jesus' body, and that the image on the shroud was caused by the cloth's contact with Jesus. The scientific community responded almost immediately. Less than a week after Yves Delage delivered his findings, the New York Herald ran the headline, Scientists Denounce Turin's Holy Shroud. M. Leopold de Lille tells Academy of Inscriptions, quote, the claim has not been proved. Secondo Pia and Yves Delage began a scientific debate over the shroud that is still raging strong today. We'll cover the extensive research and scientific testing on the shroud in our next episode. But for now, there are a few more dramatic turns in the history of the shroud itself. In 1918, the First World War threatened the security of the shroud. Air raids in particular were concerning because they could cause so much destruction with very little warning. Italy's King Victor Emmanuel III decreed that the shroud be protected, but also that it not be removed from the royal palace in Turin. In order to satisfy these conditions, a clandestine underground chamber was dug two full floors below the ground level of the royal palace. Even the contractors designing the chamber and overseeing construction did not know what it was for. Once the secretive cellar was dug, a locked strongbox was placed inside, secured with a heavy combination lock. Then the shroud was pulled from the St. John the Baptist Cathedral, wrapped in a heavy blanket, and placed inside a tin chest that was carefully soldered shut. The sealed tin box was placed inside the strongbox, and the lock was shut. The shroud remained undisturbed in its secret hiding place for the entire war. When the war concluded and danger was determined to have passed, the shroud was surreptitiously returned to St. John the Baptist Cathedral. In 1931, Italian photographer Giuseppe Enrié photographed the shroud again. His session was witnessed by Secondo Pia, now 76, and scientists from the French Academy. Secondo Pia's photographs had been stigmatized by skeptics, but Enrié's images were very similar to Pia's and proved that Pia had not tampered with the negatives to achieve the more detailed image. We'll dive deeper into the discussion around how and why the photographic negatives display greater detail than the shroud itself in our next episode. In 1939, at the cusp of World War II, the St. John the Baptist Cathedral was once again not a safe enough haven for the shroud. It was secretly transported to the Benedictine Abbey of Monte Vergine, almost 600 miles away on the peninsula of Italy. The shroud arrived on September 25, 1939. Only four members of the Abbey knew the shroud was being stored there, and they alone were responsible for the shroud's safety for the entirety of the Second World War. After the war, the shroud was returned to Turin in 1946. The shroud continued to attract those in need of healing. A British soldier, Group Captain Leonard Cheshire, actually recovered from tuberculosis after visiting the shroud in 1954. 
He was so inspired by the experience that he commissioned a tour bus to exhibit photos of the shroud all over his home country. In 1955, Veronica Woolham wrote to Leonard Cheshire requesting that her daughter Josephine, then 10 years old, could be blessed with the relic of the Holy Shroud. Josephine was unable to walk due to a painful bone infection in her hip and leg. Leonard Cheshire personally escorted Veronica and Josephine to Portugal to obtain permission to view the shroud from Umberto II of Savoy, the shroud's legal owner at the time. Upon Umberto's approval, the trio then traveled to Turin. The shroud's casket was opened, and Josephine was allowed to put her bare hand onto the relic. Josephine was not instantly cured, but she did later recover. However, so much media hype was focused on Josephine's condition that when no immediate miracle occurred, Cardinal Pellegrino of Turin decreed that he would establish the shroud's authenticity using... Science. Scientists were about to be granted unprecedented access to the Shroud of Turin. Join us next week to find out if modern research can explain why people have been flocking to this relic for millennia. We'll look at the scientific studies that birthed syndenology, the entire field dedicated entirely to studying the shroud. Some researchers became so enamored with their subject matter, they converted to Catholicism. The shroud is still being actively tested today. Research published in 2017 provides a theory about the shroud's origins, but the circumstances necessary to create the shroud are not possible on planet Earth. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back Thursday with another episode. You can find all previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. Well, if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Hannah McIntosh and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.